People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Michelle Campbell-Mason is our guest today on Health Gig, and Dora and I are so excited to have Michelle here with us today. She's a producer, she's a writer, she's an actor and a designer, and she's been a big part and actually a producer on Call Jane, this movie that's actually streaming now on Hulu and Apple. It's excellent and everybody should watch it. She's also a jewelry designer, and she's going to talk to us about why she started that company and where it is today. We have so much to talk to her about, and we can't wait for you to be part of this conversation. Welcome, Michelle, to Health Gig. Trisha and I are so excited you've joined us. Michelle is a new friend of ours, and we're delighted you could be with us. Thank you so much for having me. I know it was pretty fantastic to have so many things that you can talk about off the bat with someone. So much to talk about, but let's just start with a little bit about you, where you grew up, a little bit about maybe your family and whatever you want to tell us about your life. It got more interesting as time went on, but I grew, <laughs> up, I grew up in Sacramento, very much like the Lady Bird movie was my upbringing, a very peaceful place, but we call it like the Midwest of California. You know, Joe Didion had a lot to say around that. And then I moved down to LA and went to UCLA and was always just obsessed with film, film history and was immersed in it fully once I got to Southern California, really thought acting was going to be my thing, was doing all of that work, got a few fun little bit parts here and there in college and then graduated during the writer's strike, which was the, you know, the time in which reality TV really took off. So the whole business changed. And at that time I said, oh God, I need a career alternative because there's nothing to do. And so I started a jewelry company because at the time I had inherited some really beautiful pieces from my grandmother and wanted to create some more modern driven designs to kind of complement them or reset some of the stones. And so that turned into me writing a business plan and then going after some investors and deciding to just turn it into a full-on line. That was in like 2010 and we launched in 2011 and that brand has continued to thrive and grow and take on many different incarnations over the years. But when it became more self-sustaining, I was able to go back to my passion and roots, which are filmmaking and history and women's stories. And I decided to get on the other side of the lens and really try to cultivate and find great women in history and the ways to tell their stories. So that's how we ended up here. That's so incredible and so interesting. I think we're all really interested in that, but we don't really say those words, you know? So it's so neat that that's your focus and that's what you do. Talk to us about Witches Anonymous. Did you intend to dive more into the history of women being demonized for their integrity and power? Because you told us yesterday that that's really kind of your thing. You want to show that women, we can stand on each other's shoulders, right? Yes, stand, uh, standing on each other's shoulders or more so standing side by side and always cultivating space at the table for one another. You know, the intention behind our podcast was really to encourage women to see each other as a support system instead of an adversary. In our first season, we went a little more interview format, and I really want to dive more into the history of amazing women being demonized and pitted against each other throughout time. Because if you look back, it's so clearly a pattern of patriarchal norms and how we can break it if we look at the past. So that's really what I would love to focus on going forward. Tell us why you named it Witches Anonymous. 
well, my partner and I, we were both very much into intuition and I'd say like how we are drawn to certain people that we meet and you instantly have like a bond and a friendship and Hilaria and I definitely had that when we met. But that coupled with just being so much on the same page about supporting other women, which is irrelevant is because I'm related to one of the eldest women killed in Salem as a witch, uh, Margaret Scott. She's a great grandmother and nine nine-ish generations back, which is interesting. You know, we learn so much of this through Ancestry.com and all these, you know, DNA services. So when I found that out years ago, I was like, oh my God, everything in my life makes sense. Like yeah. why I want to tell these stories and always just kind of to being really interested in epigenetic trauma and how that informs, you know, how we live our lives. What did you find out about her? It's just so awful. You know, it's not like finding out that you're related to this woman who was murdered for no reason is a good thing. It's so sad too, just the way that they were killed. Most of these women, you know, they were poor, they were older, they were widows, they were annoying. You know, she in particular annoyed a bunch of her neighbors and there's so much popularity around the Salem witches. It's all very well documented and people have written their college theses on it. It's fascinating. I found with her though, you know, she stood near someone's cow and the cow died and they're like, well, she witched that cow. She killed our cow. And it's oh like in goodness. the court documents. And it's just so bizarre that a 73-year-old woman, which that's like being 120 in the 1600s, was killed for that. And it's just all very disturbing. And what's the most disturbing when I've done so much research into this time, the judge that presided over so much of this two years after the trials said it was all a mistake. You know, oh, and he oh, just God. kind of retracted the whole thing. Like, it's a little too late. You killed yeah. hundreds of people. It's just such a horrible blemish in history. And having a connection to it is it's compelling just to make me want to tell stories and honor these people. But at the same time, it's, it's just upsetting as well to look back and see all this. Do you feel a connection with your grandmom? You know, I try to just meditate and connect to like women in my lineage. So there's never some sort of direct conversation, but just trying to honor it. You know, I think we all try a lot of alternative healing. And so there's always, I'm like, there's a lot of spiritual energy around, right? I don't know who's who, but feel supported by the women of the past. Talk about being an independent film producer. I was so excited to watch one of your films actually early, early this morning called Jane. And you continue with issues that affect women and do it in such a great way in this film. But how did you get into producing and what do you love about it? I got into it by just realizing that you can be a part of telling the story as opposed to as an actor, you're kind of waiting to be chosen. It's a tough energy to sit in all the time. So I had a friend who was a producer and brought me into a few projects and connected me to my mentor and dear friend, Robbie Brenner, who is the woman who made Call Jane possible in so many fantastic films. And I'm just a small piece in the machine that is that movie, but so honored to be a part of the story. Dora says you're in the movie. Yes, you're in, oh, yes. The, you're in the bank. I am the, <laughs> the fancy bank customer. <laughs> that scares Elizabeth Banks a little bit. So that was fun. It was fun so great to be able to be on set. You know, that movie got made during COVID. So there were a lot of issues with being able to visit set otherwise. So I kind of found my way in that way. But working with Phyllis Nagy, who was our director, she's just extremely brilliant woman. And it was a really, really gratifying experience on every level and to be a part of, you know, the reproductive rights conversation. That film came out after Roe v. Wade was turned over. What did you think about that? Well, it came out very shortly after. 
I got involved five years prior because it was just a brilliant script and amazing historical story to be telling. Also, so many people don't know how dangerous and hard things were for women before Roe was the precedent and just how it affects low-income women and how there's so much death, such useless loss of life when these things are so hard to attain. Ironically, you know, the movie took a very long time to get made. Any movies really just when it gets made, it's a miracle. So there were many different casting times, different places we were going to film. And we somehow got this amazing cast and filmed during COVID. And the timeline just was chance. I wish we'd had an opportunity to use this as a bigger platform because the conversation is so relevant and doesn't seem to be going away. But that's the funny thing. There's so much content out there these days. You know, a lot of things do get a bit lost in the shuffle. So I will keep standing on my soapbox and trying to have those conversations, but it happens. Well, it was a great film. What are you working on now and what's exciting for you? That's the funny part. I get really excited all the time. It's like I spend so much time reading and researching and it's hard to channel your energy because there's like so many great stories and so many great women that were left out of the history retelling. I was listening to one of your previous episodes and Doro, you actually referenced a statistic about like how many women are a part of history books or history retelling. It was like 0.1%. It was so disturbing, but I think that that's kind of what drives me to do this. It's very hard to get content made in the space of history because it's just so much more expensive and everyone has kind of a knee-jerk reaction to it saying like, oh, a period piece. You know, when it works, it's beautiful, but to get to that point, it's really challenging. So I've been trying to cultivate more contemporary stories so I can keep telling stories and maybe referencing how the past informed them. So working on a piece around astrology and romantic comedy and sliding doors in that space because there's so many fun, you know, non sequiturs in our daily life where people are like, what's your sign? And then they don't know their blood type. So that's one of the projects <laughs> I'm working on. That's, so, that's true. so true. It's so bizarre, right? It's kind of been my baseline. I'm like, I ask people, I'm like, well, do you know your, do you know your blood type? And they're like, no, but I'm a Capricorn with an Aries rising. I'm like, right, that's going to save your life when you go to the ER. I have this great project I've been working on for a long time around female bootleggers. And that's something that's in development now. And I'm hoping to find the perfect home for it. There were just as many women doing it. And they were just as cavalier and wild as every man we've heard of, but no one knows about them. How do these stories find you or how do you find the stories? What's that process? It's just chance. You know, it's funny. Often, you know, I get sent a lot of scripts and concepts but a lot of the things that I've really been inspired by, you're even just like at a dinner and someone says, like, oh, you work in the female space. Oh my God, have you heard of so-and-so? And she's so amazing. And then, you know, I go and dive into that. And that's very fun because it's kind of this organic way. The way I found the female bootlegger story was purely through a, a book recommendation on Amazon. All of it, you just, it's chance. Was Call Jane based on a true story? Yeah, it's an amalgamation of many stories of the Janes, which, you know, there's a documentary about them as well that I believe came out on HBO. And the characters in that film are fictionalized combinations of many women. So it's based on true events, but there's not like a direct line to one woman because they were so anonymous in essence. The documentary on the Janes is very good too. It gives a little broader perspective, but that was an underground ring that basically their motto was to pay it forward with their services. So when you received a service, you would become a part of the group. So whether it required you to help someone, you know, cover up to their family, pay for the service or drive them to or from the appointment. So it became this real support network of women. 
which might exist again. So <laughs> I know, sadly. So tell us about your jewelry line, which is a nice side hustle for you. <laughs> and yeah. um, tell us how that came about and what you love about doing that. You know, it became out of college, like the main hustle bit. And then I got to dive back into the history passions. You know, everything we do is around creating beautiful product that's accessible. So trying to find a way to empower women to be able to get what they want for themselves instead of waiting for someone to gift them. So my new direction has been in the lab cultivated diamond space. It's the same exact chemical composition. You know, a huge amount of the industry is moving in that direction. But you get to offer a product that is gorgeous and comparable to everything that's very high end, but has a much lower entry point in cost. So that's been a fun new direction to be going in. So you're so entrepreneurial. Like, did you expect to be entrepreneurial? Did you know you were going to go down this path and really creating new ways for as you say, there's that common thread, you know, the new ways for people to wear jewelry at a much more affordable price. And then with your production company bringing out something people haven't talked about. Do you feel entrepreneurial? You no, <laughs> actually, I don't. I kind of just feel it's funny. And I think you two share this trait, just like being very interested in people and the world and conversations you have. So everything I do is always kind of inspired by someone you connect with or your energy or a conversation you have and it sparks an idea. I kind of feel like it's just kind of creative mishaps that have led me down this path, but it feels very natural. And do you think this is where you'll stay? You want to grow the production company? Absolutely. It takes an army to tell the stories that matter and to be a part of that group. Before it was campfires, but you know, after that, there were so many different ways stories stayed alive. And for our generations, it's filmmaking, TV shows, and podcasts. So I think this is the way to carry the importance of the past forward for now. And I'm sure there will be another, right, another way else. in the future, but so important to maintain that tie. How is it for women in the film industry now? since Me Too and since some of those things happen? I can't speak to it. You know, I'm just such a small fish. I can't speak to everyone's experience. Obviously, there are a great group of women in the business. You know, there have been very few female studio heads, but that has changed, you know, but it began in the 80s with Sherry Lansing. But it's just the gender dynamics at the top are not very different than they were in the past. But, you know, there's a lot more open-mindedness around who's sitting at the table. And I think it's just getting better and better. And so we just have to keep pushing and keep having great stories. Like we talked about yesterday, I was sort of interviewing someone who had a very powerful position that a woman had never held. And I had asked her, like, how did you do this at a time when there were so few women in the business and you were really a cavalier? She's like, well, I didn't look at myself as a woman. I just looked at myself as a person who was great at what I did. And I think that's how we keep pushing forward and getting that seat at the table. But we, with me too, I think everyone's a little cautious in the way that dynamics are, you know, have become, I mean, safer. Everything feels a little more buttoned up, but, you know, we've got a long way to go. We do have a long way to go. And again, you get caught up in your life, you're moving and moving and moving, and you forget as women where we came from and where we are now and how much, as you say, we've made progress, but there is so much more that needs to be done. So the work you're doing is so important and um, so fascinating. So tell us like what it's like to be a producer. What's your day like? <laughs> My days are so weird. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, actually today, and I think that this is such an important part of the creative process. I mean, I'm like on my third time reading the Rick Rubin book, The Creative Act. 
the new one, yeah, about Taoism mindfulness and how it informs creativity. I meditate, you know, at least once a day. It's gotten me through the hardest, craziest moments in my life. And we've talked about this at length at, at other moments, but that's how the day starts. And so, you know, break all those bad cycles in your head and take your oh, thoughts yeah. out of the personalization <laughs> because, dear God, <laughs> that's how the day starts, right? That's so good. Reset. And then, yeah, I just kind of try to read and, you know, write a little bit in the morning just to get the ideas out. And, you know, I'm a small operation. So it's really just always like making lists on trying not to forget. 50 things that need to happen. Being that I'm based in New York right now, it's not as much in-person work. You know, everyone's in California. So it's kind of, I have the morning to really just kind of set and figure out the day. But we do have like time zone issues with the jewelry. So sometimes that kind of runs into odd hours. But the day-to-day is just really chaos theory. Like you don't know like if you're going to have a meeting. I mean, some of these projects take so many years to get done. So it's really about trying to keep those conversations going or find the right alignments. I mean, you really have to believe so deeply in these things to you know maintain that energy flow because otherwise, how are you going to stay on something for so many years? So yeah, it's really just about, you know, finding creative ways into getting these things one step further down the line. It's juggling, balance, and trying to keep everything together. (laughs) Are you a strong writer? That's a good question. I'm a writer. Uh, I do write. I do enjoy it. I have written a few, you know, scripts in the past. And I started studying screenwriting later just because when you're in it, you really need to be able to speak the language and be able to get it out and be able to help. You know, if I want to write like a two-page treatment or whatever, you don't want to like have to find someone and explain it to them all the time. Sometimes things are better done when you just do it yourself, right? <laughs> but yeah, it's not my day-to-day. So how do you spend your free time when you're not writing and creating? And what do you do on the off time? I travel a lot, so I feel like there's not so much uh, idle time to try and fill. I'm a big walker. I love my dog and we just, we blaze on. A lot of fitness. I have a great group of friends. So, you know, it's just really about connecting with everyone and trying to find peace. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. that's what we were saying. Just your mindfulness practice. It's just when you said that, I thought, oh, that's just so important because it then sets out your day. And I think what you were saying too, like the set of friends that we have, we are who our tribe is, you know, so we really are impacted by the people that we're with and that defines our days and our lives. And again, it's just so cool how you're able to bring that into your work, you know? Thank you. You know, I recently lost one of my closest friends to cancer and she was, you know, in her thirties and it's just changed how I look at everything, how I spend every moment and just really not filling time for the sake of filling it and finding more stillness and quiet to really like experience like what you really want out of life, what connections really fill you up instead of deplete you. I would like to use this moment to say there's so much work that needs to be done around like HPV-derived cancers. That's what took her down and it just wasn't found out fast enough. It's a new killer in our generation and there's so much research and work that needs to be done around it. I just hope to become a part of that conversation too because it's just been absurd to watch and so harrowing. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So how old was she and how does it get diagnosed and all of that? When she got sick, there just wasn't enough knowledge around that specific kind of cancer. They didn't find it for a while. And so there's a lot of misdiagnoses for actually years that really caused a lot of issues. But she was a brilliant, beautiful woman. She was 39 years old and battled it for five years like a warrior. 
such a magical woman, super into meditation, did everything right, very healthy, but you just, you never know. But I take it as some people come into the world and burn really bright as she did. And, you know, she's by my side now. Cancer is something that we do talk a lot about on this podcast, as you probably know, and at our conferences as well. So we'll certainly be highlighting that too, HPV. Yeah, I'm really trying to find philanthropy around it, and there really isn't one that is focused on that. And I just think even initiating the conversation is very, very important because every girl and, you know, like the millennial generation and, and it just can be dormant, but it can give you these really rare forms of cancer that are so hard to detect. You know, you bring up such a good point. I don't know, Dora, if you remember, but we didn't have that offered to us, but our girls did. You just said that. And I know that they had been talking about that. There's still tons of confusion around it. Our daughters are in their 20s, early 30s. There's not a whole lot of clarity about HPV. Yeah, it's odd. It's very abstract. And the more I look into it, the more I realize that this is a big misstep that needs to be corrected because they're finally gaining the data to be able to combat this in the right way and just talk about it. What advice would you give to someone entering your field of work? If it were the jewelry space, I would say there's so much waste in the world, so many issues with our carbon footprint. Really find a way in that is minimal impact that is a product that the world needs, not one more thing that is going to go into a landfill eventually. You know, I think that's a really important component because with fashion and seasonal fashion, it's just a disaster. And so I try to be very cognizant of everything I'm making because of that. And in the film business, I don't know if you guys watched the Oscars this year, but I thought it was really lovely, a lovely pivot. Obviously, it's only up from the slap, but, uh, (laughs) you know, it felt like everyone had so much gratitude and the speeches were so beautiful and raw and excited. And I think if you're going to go into that business, you have to love it and have no other option. And when you feel so deeply passionate about something, anything is possible. you know. And I, I have great days. I have hard days and I've had some great wins, but you still wonder, I'm like, am I ever going to be able to get anything made again? Am I ever going to be a part of anything again? But you can't think about that too much. You just got to keep moving and believing in what you're doing. So I think wherever you enter into that business, you need to have a passion that just flies lights that fire in your soul so you can keep going when it's dark. I love the word, just believe, just believe. It's good advice. And then start doing, but with your mission kind of clear. Exactly. There's a great book that I reference whenever I'm like, should I be doing this? And it's Peter Thiel's Zero to One. Oh, yeah. I just think it's a great way for anyone in any business to look at why you're the one that should be doing what you're doing. And I try to apply that whenever I'm coming up with something new. And I think it is very helpful because maybe you're doing something that a zillion people are doing and what you're going to do isn't necessarily going to stand out. Okay, so recalibrate. Find a reason that you have something compelling to offer that's different. That's helpful because then you just don't spin your wheels uselessly. So far, you've mentioned two books. I can tell you're a big reader. If you could pick one book that you think everyone should read, what would it be? Obviously, this is an audio recording, but there's a big old pile of books behind me. (laughs) What I mean, just for me, is like wanting to be a storyteller that's in like the impact disruption space. One of the books that got me really 
excited about trying to make movies was called Shakespeare by Another Name by Mark Anderson. And it talks about the Oxfordians versus the other side of the conversation where they think Edward de Vere wrote Shakespeare's plays. And so Ah. there's this whole theory around there was no way that William Shakespeare could have done what he did with his education level where he was from, his access to the courts, and he wouldn't have had such an understanding of the elaborate things that went on in the courts in that era. And so there's this Earl, Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere, and he allegedly may have written them. And so this book is a deep dive into it. And actually, someone else made a movie about it called Anonymous, probably like 10 years ago. But that was the book that got me. I was like, people need to know this. Yes. This <laughs> uh, I tried to option that book in college and had no idea what I was doing. So didn't pull it off. But that's really what put me down the path. The meditation work is so profound for me. So a lot of Joe Dispenza's books have been really oh, yeah. helpful. How did you get into meditation and mindfulness? It is a huge part of you. Thank you. I hope so. <laughs> My mother, she's an MFT, and she was always very into the spiritual side of psychology as well. She brought me to some great meditation conferences when I was really young, like Sylvia Borstein and Tara Brocht, even Brian Weiss with past life regression therapy. So I got really into the space at a young age, and it just kind of like always stuck with me. And I have an uncle who's like a Buddhist and Catholic, and he kind of reckons between the two and always like believing very much in a certain doctrine, but also believing so much in like Taoism and that space and that entry point to spirituality. So it's always been a part of our family. It's funny. What got me into a regular practice was Joe Dispenza and his meditation. It's just so pragmatic, and I found it very applicable to my lifestyle. I would like to get more into TM. I've just had a hard time with the mantra. You know, we are too. So we could talk about that. (laughs) Yeah. Let's work on that. We've had Bob Roth on our podcast. And so Tricia and I are going to get trained in TM soon. It's an exciting process. Mm. How long is that process? Do you know? Is it three days or something? Three days. You know, you have a teacher and they teach you the traditions. And that's what makes it, I think, different than other mindfulness practices in that you're taught one-on-one and then you have your mantra. And then you do 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the afternoon. I mean, we're just beginning to learn about that. So that's what we understand. But, you know, you had shared with us sort of your journey in terms of life struggles and that kind of thing. And you have some thoughts on psychedelics and how that's helped your world. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Yes, I think it's, you know, it's a very important conversation that's becoming more normalized as of late. Thank goodness. I had been going through a hard time and I'm like a very naturally joyful person, but, you know, middling depression at times and uh, got on an SSRI and it just really did not sit well with me. I was only on it for a matter of months, but it was quite debilitating. And at the time I'd started, you know, I met a group that worked in psychedelic assisted therapy and the hero's journey that you'd take with like large amounts of psilocybin. I talked to them and I got into microdosing and got off of the SSRI and it was night and day and it's been profoundly helpful and I would never go back. And I know it's different for everyone. It just, for me, it was really spectacular. And I think SSRIs are great for some people. You just need Everyone needs their own their own brew, <laughs> going back to the witches. But yeah, for me, the <laughs> psilocybin was very helpful and natural. So it just felt like a less risky avenue. And do you microdose regularly? Yes. Do you do it's that? It's a tiny, un- tiny portion. Yeah, yes. That's what we understand, that it's small, but that it actually just changes a lot, right? There's no side effects. That's our understanding. 
yeah, it's not like you're seeing anything when you take it. You take it in the morning and you're just, it elevates your mood. Do you work with a therapist or who do you work with that guides you on that? With the microdosing, you know, it's all measured out for your body weight and you've got a specific time, four days on, three days off. Everyone has a different protocol, but that's been mine. With the other, the more extreme versions of the journeys, there's a whole group that is there to support you and see you through, but it is very profound healing in every sitting. Dora and I are learning more and more from the podcast and hearing how it's helped others a lot. So I'm glad that you were able to share that so people can know there's other options. And there's so many great documentaries now out on it so people can understand it. It doesn't sound like some kind of bizarre drug thing because, you know, it's a plant and, you know, they all call it a medicine because it really, it's profoundly healing if done the right way. What documentaries would you suggest for people? Michael Pollan's Change Your Mind. And then there's Fantastic Fungi. I think that's on Netflix. There was an episode about people with terminal diseases that do these journeys and how it provides them this joy and takes the fear of death away because you see that it's all transmutes life, death, and spirituality. And that's been very profound for me in my journeys because you see how connected it all is. And so actually my friend, when she was at the end of her battle, she did one and it provided her so much levity and peace in a time where it's really hard to find that. There's so much good that can come from it. Dora and I are really hearing more and more about it and really appreciate you bringing that up. Thank you. I think when you have a healthy, structured meditation practice, it all kind of feeds back into each other. So you find yourself connecting the dots there. It informs my meditation and makes it, I think, more powerful. That's what we're hearing the reports from many people. We're lucky that it is getting the positive attention that it deserves. And hopefully it just keeps going. Keeps going. We've touched on so many things, but what haven't we talked about that you would like our listeners to know about you or about life or about anything? Working in a space of storytelling and self-reflection and just trying to like always be better. The one thing I've learned that hopefully can help others is once you realize that you know nothing, life is extremely freeing. We're just here as students and we can keep learning and let's keep listening and being open and just really entering situations without judgment and projection. And I think that when I got to that point in my life, I think every interaction, there was much less social anxiety. There was much less fear around surface conversations because you go deep more immediately when that's your intention. Sort of how we met in a really like intense environment with so many strangers and how <laughs> I feel like we all connected so quickly because there was so much openness. But I think that's because it was a group of like-minded people who kind of share that common knowledge of all we can do is learn from others. So if there's anything I can impart on anyone, it's just, yeah, we know nothing. And that's awesome because we can only get better so and learn true. more. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. It's been fun to reconnect and wonderful to have you. This was awesome. I just want to hang out with you guys all the time. I keep (laughs) talking about this. So let's meditate. Let's let's get together. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. Doro and I are so excited to have best-selling author Dr. Jennifer Freed join us this year at the Gasparilla Inn in November. She's an author and a renowned psychological astrologer that works with Gwyneth Paltrow, Goop, and other celebrities to see how wellness, astrology, and personal growth all add up. 
Join us this year at the Foundations of Wellness Experience. You can get your reservations at the Gasparilla Inn by dialing 877-764-1420 or visit their website, the-gasparilla-inn.com and make your reservations today.